Hey everyone, welcome back to the Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. I'm here with Paul Prescott. Paul, it's been a minute since we saw each other. What's up? Not much. I, uh, I see you're in a new place. I am in a new place. Uh, for all of our viewers, I now live in New Mexico, just moved into a new house, which is why things are looking a little sparse behind me. So apologies in advance if there's a little bit of an echo or if this surrounding is not very exciting. Um, but there will be more to come. Oh, and also if you're in New Mexico or even if you're just in the mountain time zone, like let us know in the chat because you're my people. You got to put in some more work before you're just, you can claim them, you know? It's true. You just yeah. got well, there. Well, don't forget, I am from Idaho, which is also in the mountain time zone. So I'm kind uh, of returning back to the Rocky Mountain roots. Um, right. But New Mexico is totally new for me. Um, I happen to know that uh, uh, one of your friends, Dustin Wastella, sometimes says that the Southwest is going to be the new hotbed of American socialism. I'll keep you all posted. That's true. I mean, <laughs> clearly second after Philly, because we are already the hotbed, the uh, epicenter of the world of socialism. So. I knew you were going to pull your uh, Philly superiority card yet again, uh, but since we are talking about different regions of the U.S., I'll give it to you. Right. It's a sign of great insecurity, if you haven't noticed it. In <laughs> Philly, we're very insecure. Well, actually, you know what I was just thinking? Uh, now that I'm in New Mexico, none of the hosts of the Jacobin Show or of the Weekend Show are based in New York City anymore. So wow. we're we're no longer. Uh, I don't. I mean, are are uh, Philadelphians a coastal elite? You pr- you probably are, right? You're still coastal elite. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to really think of any Philadelphian as are- an elite. Um, <laughs> but yes, that that's a good sign that we are. Yeah. You know, can't call us coastal elites anymore. Well, uh, jokes aside, we've got a great show today. Uh, we're having Alex Hokuli on. He is the co-host of the podcast Alpha Bunga Bunga. He'll be coming on a little later to talk to us basically about uh, the breakdown of neoliberalism and or whether neoliberalism is on its deathbed. Um, I kind of feel like ever since the 2008 crash, we've sort of heard again and again that neoliberalism is dying. Some people have gone so far as to say that it's dead. Um, I think it's fair to say that it is in a specific moment of crisis. Uh, What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, first of all, what is neoliberalism? What is neoliberalism? Um, that reminds me, I, I feel like when Jacobin first started as a publication, literally every article, um, and, and, and I wrote these types of articles too, were like, this thing is neoliberalism. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right. Like all yeah. of the early issues, like this chair is neoliberalism right. or like this movie is neoliberalism. <laughs> um, so if you don't know what neoliberalism is, check out the Jacobin back archives. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think th- there's a great quote in an article it was in Socialist Register a while ago by Adolf Reed and, and um, Mark Dudzik, where basically they say neoliberalism is basically capitalism without a working class opposition. I think that's a good way to think about it. It's basically capitalism operating as it would like to, mm-hmm. um, as it, you know, it's kind of supposed to in their eyes, um, where you know everything is left up to the free market. You're pulling back from the state as much as possible. You're attacking labor. And I think, I mean... You're definitely seeing side effects of out- outbursts against neoliberalism that are taking many different forms, whether that's um, rejecting politics altogether or the far right or the far left 
So I think that we're in this kind of unstable period where we're not sure what's going to come out on the other end of it. I sometimes hesitate to say it's in crisis because I think that implies that like there's about to be a left-wing revolution that's going to replace neoliberalism. And unfortunately, I don't see that at least on the horizon anytime soon. But I think it's definitely on the rocks and is not not able to survive in the same stable way that it, it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you can definitely see... Um... I think that you're right. It might be too early to say that neoliberalism is on its deathbed, but I do think that there are specific moments where its legitimacy has been called into crisis. Um, I know that Alex is going to talk about that a little bit when he comes on. Uh, some of these, some of these outbursts, I guess, or some of these moments of rupture have been uh, more interesting or more positive than others. Uh, but we can think about things like the uh, UK Brexit referendum, the election of Donald Trump, um, and also the rise of Bernie Sanders here in the U.S., as well as the uh, uh, impressive, if if short-lived, rise of Jeremy Corbyn over in the U.K. Um, and I guess just to add on to, you know, what you were saying, I, I think that um, something else that we talk about a lot on this show, if not always explicitly, is this idea of progressive neoliberalism. This is a term that Nancy Fraser, I think, came up with. Um, I'm, I'm sure other people use it as well. Um, and this is kind of, this is the phenomenon where you have neoliberalism, which, as you said, is this economic regime of intense privatization, uh, the retrenchment of the welfare state and austerity politics, uh, complete deregulation of the financial markets, of you know financial institutions, of banks, um, and and uh, just constant assaults on labor. Uh, but but progressive neoliberalism is when you have all of that, but you also like diversity, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Uh, so in other words, you can want to deregulate Wall Street, but you also think that Wall Street should be 50% women, you know, uh, what is it, uh, 14% black, 12% right. Latino, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, you want a diverse ruling class. That's progressive neoliberalism. Um, and I know that, you know, recently Republicans have started calling this woke capitalism. We've talked about this on the show before. Um, obviously, what they mean is not quite the same as what we mean, because right. they just want the unwoke capitalism, as I think I've said before, um, where we want no capitalism. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, and I think increasingly, too, um, I mean, not just like with progressive neoliberalism being for diversity, but being very good at employing the language that is coming out of the university, supposedly yep. from the left, um, you know, really just being so good at using that language. I mean, I know everyone in the podcast world has talked about the CIA recruitment videos, but it really was telling like, wow, they just like are just inputting any sort of buzzword that they can, but they're able to use it kind of in a convincing way. If you aren't mm -hmm. like, you know, prepared to really, you know, uh, see what's really going on there. They're, they're using it competently. Yeah. And I, I think for me, the interesting thing about that, and I know that this is something you've talked about before as well, is a lot of people sort of understand, or a lot of people want to say that the CIA or, you know, whatever, like, uh, uh, deplorable institution using social justice language is a co-optation of this rhetoric. And I know something that you've pointed out before, as has Adolf Reed and, you know, Cedric Johnson and Walter Ben Michaels is, okay, sure, there's a certain degree of co-optation going on. But it's also the case that a lot of these, uh, I guess you might say, like identity politics or like social justice values are actually compatible with our current uh, our current regime of neoliberalism. Right. Yeah. And I think this kind of also gets at, you know, the culture wars, because that quote about, you know, 
capitalism without a working class opposition. And that kind of colors our politics when the working working class is not really asserting itself in different ways. And of course, you know, there's always going to be some sort of fight back in different ways. But I think on a broad scale, I think, you know, if you look at Margaret Thatcher in the 70s, you know, or leading up in the late 70s, early 80s in Britain, what they were doing, restructuring the economy, at least there was a really big working class fight back to that, even though they lost, you know, so to me, it it really changes the dynamic of politics. But when that is absent, that's kind of what you're we've been getting in terms of everything's turned into culture. Mm-hmm. Everything is driven by the media. Um, so I think like neoliberalism eliminating that kind of serious working class opposition leads to uh, everything turning on culture. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to quickly mention also that um, I think another interesting byproduct of the kind of uh, economic structure of neoliberalism is it, of course, spreads to culture, right? So among just like, you know, you were saying we have these culture wars now uh, in the absence of a robust labor movement, which is absolutely true. And it's also the case that neoliberalism produces its own culture of extreme ind- individualization and atomization, you know, where it's all about personal branding, uh, personal competition, um, and I, I, you know, again, this was a kind of big theme of the earlier, you know, uh, uh, issues of Jacobin, uh, again, going back to like, this thing is neoliberalism. Um, but it's really psychically damaging. Um, and right. you know, I know Alex is going to talk about that as well. Yeah. And, and it affects like, I mean, I think what really shows that they still have hegemony is that the, the left opposition is also mirroring neoliberalism yeah. and increasingly, you know, the, the dominant mode of doing activism or doing nonprofit type activism is still based on branding and individualism, mm-hmm. even though people are probably trying not to do that. But I think that is the true tell that they really are still hegemonic. And I think mm-hmm. there's been a lot of interesting stuff written about, I think it was, I mean, David Harvey has different theories about, you know, the left's opposition kind of mirrors the structure of the economy and society. So when it was more of this Fordist model, you know, where you had the the mass production industries, that's where you also had these mass working class uh, based parties and unions. And like now that it's a lot more fractured, we're kind of getting a more uh, fractured opposition, which right, I don't like really know Forrest- what to do about that. But <laughs> right, right. Um, but I think build the labor just, movement. <laughs> yeah, right. <It's, laughs> stay, stay tuned for Labor Paul, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I guess on that note, uh, I know we both have a couple of comments about higher education um, as it relates to kind of this moment of neoliberalism. Um, So I guess let's dive in. Uh, There's been some higher education news lately that I sort of want to go over. Uh, Some of you may have seen that earlier this month, Republican Senator Tom Cotton introduced what he calls an ivory tower tax to punish so-called woke universities. Cotton's bill proposes a 1% tax on endowments held by the wealthiest universities, which of course include Ivy League schools like Harvard and Yale. In a statement, Cotton said, our wealthiest colleges and universities have amassed billions of dollars virtually tax-free, all while indoctrinating our youth with un-American ideas. This bill will impose a tax on university mega endowments and support vocational and apprenticeship training programs in order to create high-paying working-class jobs. So before we unpack Cotton's fear-mongering over, quote, un-American ideas, I do want to say that a tax on private university endowments is actually not a bad idea. Let's take a look at the assets of the top five wealthiest schools in the country. 
At the top of the heap, of course, is Harvard, which has an endowment of more than $40 billion. Next is Yale with over $30 billion, and all the way in fifth place is MIT with a measly $17 billion. So as Cotton noted, these endowments are tax-exempt, and schools typically do not spend down a significant portion of these endowments each year. In other words, endowments often function as convenient tax shelters for elite institutions, and schools regularly shell out far more for managing these endowments than they do on helping students with tuition. According to the New York Times, in 2012, Harvard used around $242 million from its endowment on tuition assistance. But by contrast, in 2014, it paid $362 million in private equity fees alone and nearly $1 billion in total investment management fees. So this has not escaped the attention of the left. For instance, in the past, Matt Brunig, who is the director of the People's Policy Project, has also proposed taxing private university endowments in order to create and fund federal public universities. But all that said, Tom Cotton's bill is, of course, not about expanding access to education or about redistributing wealth. It's only Republican culture war posturing. We know Cotton has no real interest in redistribution or in policies that would help the working class. After all, although he now wants to tax a very specific pocket of wealth that he associates with so-called un-American ideas, in 2017, he famously voted in favor of Trump's massive tax cuts for corporations and for the rich. He's also since opposed tax hikes on capital gains, he's opposed tax increases on the wealthiest 1%, and he's even rejected Bernie Sanders' proposal for a $15 minimum wage. In other words, Tom Cotton is obviously a culture warrior and not any kind of economic populist. But unfortunately, he's not the only one. Democrats could easily call Cotton's bluff on this issue by saying, we also support taxing university endowments, along with taxing foundation endowments, Wall Street speculation, corporations, and billionaires. But lately, when it comes to higher education, liberals have been tied up in their own culture wars. For instance, take the subject of the SATs and other standardized testing in college admissions. The University of California system recently announced it would stop using SAT and ACT scores in its, in its admissions process. So this decision came in the wake of a lawsuit from several racial justice and disability rights groups that alleged that standardized tests like the ACTs were inherently biased against Black and Latino students and disabled students. Now, of course, the SATs and other standardized tests are flawed and incomplete in many ways. Um, of course, they do reflect many socioeconomic and racial inequalities in education. Affluent white and Asian students tend to score higher on these tests than their Black and Latino counterparts. But as the writer Freddie DeBoer has pointed out, liberals vastly overstate the degree to which the tests themselves perpetuate inequality. For all the ire that standardized testing has attracted from progressives, a new study from Stanford's Center for Education Policy Analysis shows that college admissions essays, which are supposedly a more holistic measure of a student's ability than the SATs, actually correlate even more strongly with household income than SAT scores. In some ways, this should be kind of obvious. The quality and content of a student's college essay benefits immensely from their social, cultural, and economic capital. As Freddie has written, there is absolutely no reason to believe that holistic admissions aren't subject to capture by the moneyed. 
Money can absolutely get a privileged teen into a summer program building houses for low-income families in the Andes, intersectional as well as holistic, fencing lessons, decent at a rare sport is better than being great at a common sport, unless it's football or basketball, and a writing workshop, obsessive about one interest rather than casual about several in today's admissions game. So what's actually going on with the University of California scrapping the SATs? The primary goal of this move is to, diver- is to diversify its disproportionately Asian and white student body without running afoul of the California law that explicitly prohibits schools from considering applicants' race in admissions. Now, if diversifying the UC schools seems like an admirable goal, consider the fact that tuition at the University of California has risen significantly over the last several decades. As you can see from this graph from the California Budget and Policy Center, the average annual tuition at a UC school in 1980 was around $2,000 adjusted for inflation. In 2019, it was over $14,000. And in fact, just this month, UC leaders proposed instituting yet another tuition hike to begin next year. It's no secret that higher education is increasingly unaffordable for the majority of Americans, which means that the push to diversify universities in the face of steeply rising costs is really only a push to diversify a shrinking resource. And when it comes to the most elite schools, the push to diversify those is really a push to diversify the ruling class. Ivy League schools like Harvard have doubled down on their commitment recently to racially diversifying their incoming classes. Yet at Harvard, tuition plus room and board cost nearly $74,000 in 2020, and the average Harvard student's family income is over $168,000. 60% of Harvard students, in other words, a supermajority, comes from the top 20% of income earners. Fighting to diversify the top echelon of society while economic inequality worsens profoundly is the epitome of progressive neoliberalism, or what the sociologist Dylan Riley has called a profoundly unequal but rigorously equitable form of capitalism. Meanwhile, there's been little consensus among politicians on how to curb soaring tuition costs. Biden's American Families Plan does include a provision for free community college, And a new bill introduced by Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal goes a step further in also making four-year public colleges tuition-free for families earning under $125,000 annually. Sanders and Jayapal have proposed paying for this legislation with a new tax on Wall Street. But of course, the bill is a long shot in a divided Congress, and it goes without saying that we've heard not a peep from Tom Cotton on this particular wealth tax. According to the Pew Research Center, a majority of adults in the U.S. favor making public colleges tuition-free. This includes 30% of adults who strongly favor the idea. It's a sorry state of affairs when this broadly popular idea has to fall by the wayside for the culture wars, whether that's Republicans' faux-populist railing against, quote, un-American colleges, or the liberal preoccupation with diversifying elite institutions that are out of reach for the majority of working class people. So I will wrap it up there. Um, Paul, I know you probably have some thoughts on college and standardized testing, um, but uh, yeah, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, can we first just go back to like $40 billion of an endowment? I mean, that's they're on the level of a Fortune 500 company. 
you know, like, I mean, that's just ridiculous. And, you know, in, in Philadelphia, you know, the University of Pennsylvania is deemed a mega, quote unquote, nonprofit. So they have a $14 billion endowment. They don't have to pay any property taxes in that. They can, if they want to, do voluntary payments. But so that means that, you know, the public school district is losing out on all this money that mm-hmm. should be collected from this $14 billion endowment that, like you said, it's just sitting there. It's not really being... They've, they've researched and shown that it's not really being used for their operating costs and things like that. I mean, they just still collected tuition when kids are, were at home during COVID, you know. Um, but I think this is like another example of the right wing outflanking the Democrats on these working class issues. I mean, that quote from Tom Cotton, there was nothing I disagreed there except the part about, you know, it's they're here to indoctrinate us and on American views, but all the rest of it sounded great to me. And, you know, going back to, I think really starting with Nixon, the right wing has been able to skillfully deflect anger to the economic elite uh, or from the economic elite to the so-called cultural elite and associate the left with the cultural elite. And that's, you know, still going on now. And I think the um, free college for all demand is good because, you know, we don't have to, go into like anti-intellectualism for its sake. Like we're we're saying that higher education is valuable. People should be able to do it if they want to, but we can still name the enemy. And the enemy is the elite that runs these universities and are basically ripping us all off. And we know it um, by doing that. But um, again, it's just another kind of scary example of the right wing kind of being, they're, they're, they're outflanking the, uh, the Democrats. And, you know, people are going to, justifiably be more angry at these institutions that are just putting people in more and more debt and not really showing much, you know, value to society as a whole. Yeah, I think uh, the point that you made about UPenn is really interesting, um, because what I was thinking about these massive endowments, you know, the first thing I thought about was like, uh, like, especially, you know, with the private uh, Ivy League universities, like tuition is insane. Why aren't they putting more of that endowment toward the actual running of the college. Why aren't they admitting more people? Why aren't they uh, lowering tuition costs? Um, but what you brought up is yet another uh, downside of just hoarding or sitting on top of this giant endowment, which is that you are uh, you're disadvantaging the city, you know, that you draw resources from. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, and they're also huge um, employers, and I'm sure you know mm-hmm. the wages of all the different campus workers could benefit from some of that endowment money. Yeah, um, money going to them. But you know, I think, I think once again, liberals are going to paint themselves in the corner of like, well, you know, in this age, we need truth, we need science, and the universities are our last. After MSNBC, they're our second best, last beacon of hope. You know, to save democracy. And, you know, putting yourself on the side of these, uh, you know, wealthy institutions, essentially, um, that are at the expense of everyone else. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just a bad position to be in. And I think a lot of liberals are going to run straight to that position um, to be on the side of the university Mm -hmm. as an institution. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I just wanted to quickly ask also if you had any thoughts about kind of this ongoing like culture war over diversifying higher ed. Uh, because I think, you know, I think on the one hand, like, obviously, like, we want our institutions to be diverse. Um, I don't think, you know, anybody on the show, I mean, even Walter Ben Michaels, our friend Walter Ben Michaels, like, likes diversity, like, believe it or not. Um, but I think the key here is that there's such a hyper focus on these extremely elite institutions 
that uh, I, I think it really sucks up a lot of the energy and a lot of the air out of, you know, uh, broader discussions such as free college for all, right? Um, so, you know, I, I can't remember, I, I mean, I'm sure many people have noticed or have observed this, but like, even if the Ivy League universities were like completely representative of the racial makeup of the rest of the country. Like how many people go to Ivy League universities? Like that's still like millions and millions of college kids who aren't at those universities. Uh, that does nothing to solve the funding crisis for public universities. Uh, and it's just, I don't, I feel like it's such a distraction. Yeah. And I, what's kind of ironic is that actually, if you really want to diversify higher ed, you would make it more affordable. Right. I right. mean, it's very simple. And I mean, one of my years teaching, I taught seniors and I mean, it was actually really sad. I mean, I'm in a district that it's a high poverty district, mostly um, black and Latino students. And the whole the whole focus the whole year for these seniors was the FAFSA form. How am I going to pay for this? And many just, they just did not go to college because they could not afford it. Mm-hmm. Point blank, period, that that was the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. So that truly would be the best way if you, you know, wanted to diversify, not just not just Ivy League, but most uh, universities in general, that would be the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I also want to just briefly bring up something that Walter Ben Michaels, since we already brought him up, uh, yeah. sometimes talks about. And I think this is important as well. Um, I, you know, agree with you. I mean, I, I, I support, you know, Sanders and Jayapal's free college for all bill. Um, I do think that make that making college free or even just more affordable is definitely a worthwhile goal. Um, that said, Walter points out something interesting, which is that when you look at the fastest growing jobs in the economy right now in the U.S. economy, it's things like home health care aid, right? Like things that don't require a college degree. Um, and these are terrible jobs. These, these jobs are low paid. They're precarious. Uh, these these workers, you know, like I said, make pennies. Um, they, they don't enjoy uh, stable work schedules. These are terrible jobs. And um, sending everybody to college, like let's say that there was free college for everybody. Everybody could get a college education. Those would still be the fastest growing jobs. And what that would, and like that, like making college free doesn't fix the problem of bad jobs. So it's something that we have to attend to in addition to just, in addition to also uh, providing more paths for people to go to college, right? And the reason I bring that up is because I think a lot of the times in the U.S., it's like, oh, well, you want, you know, a dignified, decent life, go to college. And like, we should make that possible, but it should also be the case that like, you can get that without college. Right, yeah. I mean, this this obsessive mindset with college is kind of built on accepting the premise that and all these other jobs are just going to remain crap mm-hmm. and there's no way. When, in fact, of course, you know, making cars in the 1920s used to be a terrible, uh, terribly paid job and that got better through uh, the labor movement. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't accept this premise that if you're in a job that doesn't require a college degree, you're screwed. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, that's a that's like a false choice that we don't we don't have to make. Right. All right. Well, um, I feel like we should uh, get back to neoliberalism yeah, unless unless you have. It. OK, let's do it. So I lo- our guest, love neoliberalism. <laughs> yeah, we all love neoliberalism. Been a uh, fan. Long time <laughs> get, fan. Get your fill of it because it's dying. Right. Right. Last the last gasp. <laughs> the last gasp. 
Um, so here to talk about that today with us is Alex Hokuli. He is, of course, the co-host of the podcast Alpha Bunga Bunga uh, and co-author with his podcast, ho podcast hosts of the new book, The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century. Um, I also want to mention that Alex is phoning in or he's calling in with us now from Sao Paulo, Brazil. So Alex, welcome to The Jacobin Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Hello. Um, so I, I want to start uh, with the title of your book, obviously, uh, The End of the End of History. It's also a phrase that I think you guys talk about on your podcast quite a fair bit. Um, and it's, of course, a reference to Francis Fukuyama's famous declaration after the fall of the Berlin Wall that the world was witnessing the end of history. Uh, and and I, I, I want to look at that phrase because you talk about it in your book and you point out that this phrase is actually pretty widely misunderstood. Fukuyama was not saying that, like, all time had stopped or we could never talk about history again, but he was referring to something pretty specific. So I was wondering if you could lay out what he meant, he meant by that. And then by extension, why are we now witnessing the end of the end of history? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, history obviously doesn't just need to be understood as events, right? That's like, I guess, lowercase history with a lowercase h. Uppercase history means something more fundamental in the way that means humans consciously shaping their society, consciously shaping the future, consciously shaping history, right? Uh, and what's happened, I mean, at the end of history, Francis Fukuyama's con uh, contestation basically was that you no longer have any systemic alternatives to capitalism, right, with the defeat and the crumbling of the Soviet Union and really existing socialism. And the defeat, also the historic defeat of uh, the working class, uh, as, a, as a systemic alternative in the West as well. So what you have is a situation in which there's no longer any more any systemic alternatives uh, and liberal democracy is taken to be the final form of human government in the words that uh, he uses. Now, what does that mean? That means that you'll have things happening, especially in less orderly parts of the world, like in the global South, you'll have events, you'll have riots, you'll have coups, uh, you'll still have events but there won't be any sense that any of those events really challenge the way that society is ordered or the sense of default of the end of history. And that sense of default is something that I, I grew up with. I think most people who would have grown up uh, or come of age before the global financial crisis will have known, um, will have been conscious of, um, and probably even longer than just 2008, probably until at least 2016, there was this sense that Nothing could really change. We didn't really believe it, however much we talked about change. In fact, even elites talked a lot about change. Uh, I remember like Tony Blair constantly talking about change and we have to adapt to change. But change was something you had to adapt to, not something that you would carry out consciously as an organized movement. And can you talk about, you know, how did politics change um, like within countries after the fall of the Soviet Union, meaning the scope of politics. So even in major countries like the United States or Brazil, like how does the scope kind of change after there is no longer the Soviet Union and maybe that kind of aspiration? Yeah, I mean, already towards the latter days of the Soviet Union, there probably wasn't so much of a sense that there could be revolution across the world. I mean, revolution was maybe by that point relegated to something that might happen in the third world, what was called then the third world. Um, but I'm not sure how much belief there still was. But I think the very existence of the Soviet Union still gave a sense that there exists an alternative that you could point to. By that point, it was so decrepit that you might not want to point to it. Many socialists no longer wanted to, certainly after 1956 and the invasion of Hungary. But the point still remained that there was a sense that 
there could be a different horizon to capitalism. The capitalism wasn't all that there was. Uh, maybe it was limited in the sense that the Soviet Union was an alternative, but it didn't seem to be a higher stage of history by that point anymore. Uh, but nevertheless, it was an alternative. Um, and that reduced the scope domestically as well, because the existence of active labor unions of a working class movement, which was combative, uh, which if wasn't necessarily fighting for revolution, it was at least fighting for gains within uh, within capitalism, for concessions from the capitalist class. Once that was gone, you no longer had the disciplining effect on elites that those movements used to carry out. And as a consequence, elites became, on one level, in international politics, incredibly hubristic because they felt that they could just bomb their way to changing the world in, in their image, right? So the invasion of the Iraq, of, course, of Iraq, of course, being the most obvious example of that. But not just that, you know, domestically what happened was that you had a foreclosure of political contestation, which is the way that we put it, uh, which is a way that basically a strategy of depoliticization so that important matters of politics were taken out of the realm of political contestation. And the clearest example, I mean, you guys were just talking about neoliberalism right before I came on. Uh, and, you know, the classic example there is central bank independence, something which should be a public matter, uh, should be publicly debated, should be uh, something which, which is the product of, uh, you know, the setting of interest rates should be the product of political contestation. And instead of something which is removed, put in the hands of technocrats, put in the hands of specialists so that politicians can no longer interfere. So to jump forward a little bit to the end of the end of history, uh, in your book, you you kind of identify the 2008 financial crash as a turning point. Um, and, and actually, you know, post-crash, I think a lot of commentators sort of rushed to declare that neoliberalism was dead or dying. Um, and I want to I want to talk about this phrase, the end of the end of history again, because that's different from history restarting, right? Like you make that point in your book. Yeah. Uh, so, so what can you tell us, or what what does the financial crash in two thousand eight kind of signify, and what did we see after that that sort of marks the beginning of some kind of rupture? Right. So, two things. Firstly, I'll, I'll talk about how the end of history ended, and then I'll talk about what the determinant factors of the end of history were, so that we can evaluate whether the end of history really has ended, right? So the first thing is that the global financial crisis um, obviously was a very profound event, but the amazing thing was that the political manifestations of it, the political consequences of it were really delayed. You know, I remember when it happened and thinking, wow, now everything's going to change. And it was amazing how things didn't. In fact, it became worse. You had a, a deepening of neoliberal rule through austerity policies. And then it was not until around maybe 2011 with the Arab Spring, which was suddenly brought the idea of revolution, the notion of revolution back into kind of global public consciousness. And then you had the movements of the squares in uh, Spain and Greece. And so little by little, you start getting growing protests, growing riots, uprisings, and so on uh, around the world. And it seems like the political establishments in various different countries, in many different countries, starts withering. Its authority starts slipping away. Uh, and then what the real, I mean, where we date the end of the end of history from really is 2016, because there at the very core of global capitalism, you have a politician elected in Trump uh, who no longer follows the uh, nostrums of, of the age of the end of history, of uh, globalization, of post-politics. Um, for all that Trump was clownish, he actually in some ways repoliticized politics because he brought contestation, dissensus back on the scene, right? 
Um, he said things that weren't meant to be said. And there was a whole effort at deglobalization. And then Brexit in a, in a very different way. I mean, I don't think Trump and Brexit are at all the same. And we discuss why in the book. But Brexit as well is um, a break with the idea of ever closer union of the of the European Union, continual European integration. It seemed to be a move again towards deglobalization, uh, potentially even a break with neoliberalism. And so those are quite fundamental. Um, and so, I mean, what we, when we started thinking about these things, it was really around 2016, early 2017, where we were like, wow, things have really changed. We grow up really frustrated with the fact that there was no politics and that all political kind of ventures on the left seem to really come to nothing, have no traction and be really mostly kind of individualistic and carnivalesque. And you can think of sort of the anti-globalization movement as, as, a, as an example. Suddenly, as of 2016, there seemed to be real traction. There was Bernie, there was Corbyn and so on on the left. And, and uh, although they weren't, they didn't really point to a world beyond capitalism, they at least pointed to a world possibly beyond neoliberalism. But I, I guess to follow up on that, at the same time, you know, even though we see kind of this break with the neoliberal neoliberal consensus in 2016, as you've been saying, um, something that you you talk about in your book is uh, the resurgence of anti politics, um, and and I was I was wondering if you could tease that out a little bit because. When, you know, when we see a figure like Trump kind of rising or we see uh, the movement of the squares, um, you know, in in the early 2010s um, or even just even the like kinds of uh, uh, protests and politics that the left seems to be engaging in now. Um, is this politics proper? Um, I, I want you to tease that out because I thought that was a really interesting part of your book. Right. And so the way we put it in, a, in the kind of the most schematic basic form, but I think it's a good kind of thing to hold on to as sort of a handrail to understand these changes, is a shift from post-politics to anti-politics. And now post-politics uh, was the dominant form of government throughout the end of history period. It's, as I've already described, it's the foreclosure of political contestation, right? Important realms of policy are moved, even at a kind of discursive ideological level. The whole discourse is like, we can't do that. No, you have to, you know, curtail your demands. That's not possible um, because the rules of globalization say it isn't, right? So if you wanted to pursue an industrial policy or have um, subsidies for key industries, uh, the government to guarantee jobs, all of these things are off the table. No, sorry, can't be done, right? These are the rules. Um, and also an emphasis on consensus, right? Anybody who would discursively break with that idea of consensus was told to shut up, like to, to basically that's not allowed, or even, you know, um, criticized as being racist, as being sexist or whatever, right? You can even see it with a kind of you know, the Bernie bro thing of being called sexist and so on. It's just a way of delegitimizing anybody who contests the sort of neoliberal managerial order. And whether we agree with the way that those challengers did their politics, right? If you think about like right-wing populists, you might not agree with them, but in some ways they were challenging post-politics, but they challenged post-politics with anti-politics. So they didn't mobilize in defense of an idea, whether it be socialism or even sort of maybe some libertarianism or some other idea that we haven't even thought of, right? That wasn't what happened. Instead, it was a denunciation of the political class as a whole and possibly the whole establishment. Um, maybe even in a deeper sense, a denunciation of representation itself, right? So when, uh, when people on the street say they don't represent us, it's not saying, but we wish to take power and... Uh, elect our own representatives or directly seize power. It was always like, 
these guys up there, you know, get rid of all of them. But there was no sense of anything else being put in its place. So it's just a complete rejection. Uh, and although that seems really radical, and I think is an important first step, and that's what we say in the book, you know, that the growth of anti-politics and anti-politics is challenged to post-politics brings politics back in. So that's a lot of, you know, I've said politics way too many times probably there. Um, but the point being that politics at its very core is contestation, is dissensus. Uh, and when you have a managerial consensus, you do not have politics. Politics isn't just government, isn't just the administration of day-to-day affairs of the state. Uh, it's about different visions, different competing visions over the social order. Um, and so anti-politics arises, but it's kind of ends up being a bit self-defeating. And we use the example of Brazil. Um, that's obviously something that I'm really familiar with, where you have a very like classic almost example of how anti-politics ends up being really self-defeating because you have this big uprising. If people aren't familiar with the history, I mean, I've written about it for Jacobin um, in 2013, where you have this big move, mass movement, millions and millions of people on the streets demanding better rights, better education, healthcare, and so on, an end to corruption, uh, which seems really radical and seems to break with a, a certain consensus politics, even though it was the Workers' Party in government, there was still a, a, a form of neoliberal consensus politics operating. Um, which then becomes transforms into an anti-corruption movement, which really leads Bolsonaro to power eventually, because you have such a delegitimation of the political class, but nothing else proposed to take its place, that you end up with a political vacuum. All of the old establishment parties uh, are have seen their authority completely withered. They lose their electoral bases. And instead, you it creates space for political entrepreneurs. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this was a, a script which in some ways perfectly encapsulates what we're talking about. But there was an earlier instance of this, which is Italy, which maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come to talk to because, of course, uh, you know, Berlusconi features features even on the cover of the books. So I'm sure uh, <laughs> you'll be interested to hear about that. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, maybe to follow up on that, because I think that is an interesting part of the book about how anti-corruption politics can be very bad for the left. And I think, you know, that might seem counterintuitive, like what's wrong with being against corruption? Of course, we're against it. Can you maybe say more about that and maybe go into Italy? Like how how is anti-corruption not necessarily the best uh, best frame we want to use? Yeah. I mean, so the problem with anti-corruption is at a, obviously at a base level, it doesn't carry with it any specific politics, any specific claims or vision about how society should be. And in fact, since the end of the Cold War, I mean, before the end of the Cold War, um, anti-corruption politics were always associated more with the left, with national liberation movements, uh, with anti-colonial movements, uh, with the socialist working class movement and so on. Um, but they, that was always carried alongside a, a vision of, of politics. So if it was a national liberation movement, it was, you know, the old colonial elites are completely corrupt. Um, they don't allow us to develop and we want to take charge and, and run society, run our nation for ourselves. After the end of the Cold War, it changes. And anti-corruption becomes called transparency. And there's a, a you know, a, a big NGO called uh, Transparency International, which is these rankings of who are the most corrupt countries and who are the least. But it's, you know, it's just based on surveys, perceptions. It's actually a kind of neoliberal form of politics because what transparency rather than anti-corruption does is it says that governments need to be fully transparent um, so that states can't rent seek against international capital. So rather than being free of corruption, what they actually propose is that international capital be free. 
Um, and so it's been wielded as an arm of the State Department even. Uh, I saw Samantha Power has been talking about anti-corruption recently um, and, so, you know, the Biden uh, administration. So there's obviously a, a, an instrumentalization of anti-corruption there to, to sort of neoliberal ends, I guess. But as it, ha- as it works as a sort of popular demand, an anti-corruption demand, and you see anti-corruption pol- uh, protests emerging all over the world. You know, at the end of 2019, you had in, you had in Lebanon, in Iraq, and you had in e- all over Eastern Europe and so on. Um, but the problem with it is, is that it, it ends up delegitimating politicians and not just those politicians that we want to get rid of, but maybe the practice of politics as a whole, because it suggests that political autonomy, basically the, the, the ability to make choices um, to, for example, pursue state-led development so that the state, uh, maybe a state bank invests in national industries, protects jobs and so on. That thing, that sort of politics will be prey to corruption because if you give politicians money to spend, uh, they're going to disperse it in ways, you know, they're just going to be pork barrel spending. They're going to waste the money. They're going to pocket the money themselves. Right. And so anti-corruption ends up putting into question the very notion of political autonomy um, by the by the legislature, by the executive and so on, whatever form that takes. Right. Um, and so in that regard, it's uh, it can be it can be self-defeating because it's that same it's it's a form of anti-politics in the sense that uh, it puts into question the ability to even do politics. Right. Not just the establishment politics that are there, but uh, the, the, uh, the any any sort of you know alternative politics. So, oh, sorry, Paul. I just wanted to follow up and say, you know, I think that's a really important point because this has come up, you know, even with the first COVID stimulus bill in the United States, like part of the Trump talking point was like, well, we can't give it to these blue states. Governments are going to misspend it. And in a, a, I mean, this has happened a frustratingly uh, high amount of times lately where if I'm talking about funding public ed uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, where the talking point is always like, well, it doesn't really matter how much money you give. They're going to misspend it. They're going to be corrupt. So it's like a built-in permanent excuse to never spend, yeah. you know. Right. That's exactly it, yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing, just one other thing, is that it invites oversight, right? It invites oversight over democracy. So if the politicians are corrupt, who needs to make sure that they don't, you know? Uh, and it's often the judges. And so what, what you end up doing is ushering a sort of judicial dictatorship. I mean, maybe that's too grand a term, but effectively judges come in and be able to say, well, you know, you've been corrupt, right? We're taking you out. And what does that do? Invites lawfare, invites mm. political conflict carried out through the courts. And you can see it with Trump, Trumpers chanting lock her up or with the impeachment of Trump, I think, as well as is in some ways one manifestation of the judicialization of politics. So since since we've been talking about kind of these um maybe not perversions, but like manifestations of politics. It, I, I mean, as you say, post-politics and anti-politics. Um, I realize I should have started by asking you to define politics or how, how do you define politics? And then um, kind of going off of that, uh, something that I think undergirds your work and that of your co-hosts is uh, Peter Mayer's idea of the void. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about that uh, uh, in terms of what that means for politics? Yeah, so I mean, politics... As I, I think I already mentioned, is the basic idea of dissensus, right? Which is the opposite of consensus. It's the idea, it's not just the administration of the affairs of the state on a day-to-day basis or even a long-term basis. Conservatives are always against politics because they want to maintain things as they are. And so that understanding of politics, which is maybe not the common sense one, because I think the common 
says one uh, identifies politics narrowly with parliaments, with elections, mm-hmm. with administration. Actually, it's something else. It's something deeper than that. It's about dissensus, as I said. Um, and the, I mean, I guess in, in relation to, to the void is that what you have is not just at level at, at the kind of level of formal institutions where you have depoliticization, but what you have is a withdrawal. I mean, what, what Peter Mayer calls the, the void is the space, the huge gap that's opened up between citizens and the state, between uh, the public and politics. And what's happened is that there's been a mutual withdrawal, that elites have withdrawn behind closed doors. And, you know, the European Union is a perfect example of behind closed doors politics where things aren't open to public accountability. There's no minutes are even taken um, on, on important meetings. Uh, and at the, so, you know, that's a way of completely avoiding de- any sort of democratic accountability. But at the same time, us citizens, we've withdrawn. Right. We, we're no longer members of political parties. We're no longer members of trade unions. We're no longer members even of civic associations, whether it be churches or trade associations or whatever. Right. We just don't gather together in organizations in the way that we used to do. Uh, and so what you have is this void where political parties um, are, in Peter Mayer's terms, cartel parties. Right. And cartel parties means that they have more in common with one another, the political parties, than they do with the people that they're meant to represent. Uh, whether it's their members or their electoral base. Uh, And that creates a situation in which these cartel parties owe their allegiance more to the state than to citizens. And so what political parties are meant to be is these organic things where people come together to collectively push forward their interests and their ideals. Uh, That no longer is the case because um, uh, political parties no longer able to channel interests from the people up towards the state. Instead, they just kind of belong to the state and float there. And once every four or five years, they use their political marketing tools to turn to this mass of citizens who they mostly despise and go, hey, actually, would you like to vote for us? Maybe we'll you know, give you a little something or you know, we're better than the other people. Or, hey, look, my suit is nicer than the other guy. That's the kind of form of managerial post-politics that ruled the end of history. But I guess to follow up on that, you know, over, I mean, you had mentioned the movement of the squares, um, you know, there's there's uh, Occupy Wall Street, of course, which we, you know, still talk about. Um, and then, of course, more recently, we've seen an explosion of racial justice protests, right? Like here in the U.S., actually, like all over the world, there's been a kind of outpouring of sustained Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm unfortunately being like pretty U.S. centric here, but we've seen lots of mass protests around the world for, for many different reasons. So I, I guess the question, I mean, this is a big question and you may not have the exact answer, but like, why can't we bottle up all this energy and like redirect it back into party, party politics? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that the attempt to redirect it into party politics, which was the attempt of left populism, and whether whether you look at Syriza or Podemos or uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign or Corbyn in the UK, all of these attempts were ways of doing kind of socialist working class politics, but without the working class in, in, in large sense, without the masses. And so it confronts the fact of the void, um, which we've already described that you're doing, you know, although there was an, a big influx uh, of members, of new members into the Labour Party, it still didn't really kind of counteract uh, the longer term trends towards the withering away of trade unions, for example, which were the building blocks of the Labour Party. And I mean, that's just one example from the UK. But uh, the example, you can take basically the same example across Western Europe, and it's the same sort of story, basically. Um, and so 
so things like Syriza were maybe a more serious attempt to channel all that energy um, from the squares up through politics. Um, but of course, that ended with uh, with the treason of uh, of Tsipras when uh, he went against the result of the referendum when 61% of Greeks voted to reject the memorandum and as a consequence, probably leave the euro and probably leave the EU. Um, and the political leadership was in some ways so distant from the, the demands, not just of its members, but of, of the wider Greek people who had voted for it, that he turned it back on it and that, well, no, we have to, this is impossible. That's too much rupture. We can't cope with that. And so kind of ran back to, uh, to the EU with the, with his tail between his legs. So, I mean, that presents the problem, not just that, not that I'm not su- suggesting that it's impossible, um, but that even when those things have been attempted, uh, it's actually ended in um, not just in failure, but in, 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 a, in a defeat and perhaps, a, you know, a ways in which the left was complicit really with its own defeat. Well, on a lighter note, um, you coined a, a phrase in the book called Knobs, which is Neoliberal Order Breakdown Syndrome. So can you explain what is that? What is yeah. Neoliberal Order Breakdown Syndrome? Why are the elites freaking out? Right. Yeah, well, exactly. That's it. I mean, that's basically the, the question. And it, I mean, anybody living in Anglophone countries especially couldn't help but be struck by the way that elites just went insane after 2016. I mean, just absolutely lost their minds. Broken brains. Um, broken <laughs> brains. Just, yeah. just, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, people in the U.S. talk about Trump derangement syndrome, and I think we maybe heard of that when we started talking about what ended up when they ended up being called neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. And we tried to kind of categorize, well, okay, what are the symptoms of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome? Something wider and deeper than just Trump derangement syndrome, not least because it's something that uh, it happens in the U.K. but happens beyond that as well, um, and. I mean, the initial thing is just the hysterical reaction to Trump and to Brexit. There was just no good faith attempt to really understand what had happened, um, why their vision of politics had lost credibility, right? There was no kind of reflexivity there. There's no sense of looking inward and going, okay, well, let's actually examine what happened. Um, So the the way we describe neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or knobs is it's the inability of the liberal establishment to accept, explain, and respond to political change. So not just do you have this sort of hysteria, and you can think of, I mean, if you want an image of it, you know, watch Rachel Maddow, right, on on, on, on NBC, MSNBC. Um, she uh, encapsulates that entirely, where the, supposedly the people who are meant to be serious and serene and balanced and rational and so on, i.e. kind of mainstream centrist liberals, are the ones who are the most wedded to the craziest conspiracy theories of Russian in, in Russian interference and the most powerful in, empire that there's ever been, the United States. Russia's manipulating things, right? Um, and that's just the, I mean, that's, that's the most obvious example, but you find it across the board. Um, and you can find it not just in that, but in sort of the unseriousness of politics, of, of, of that kind of liberal reaction, at this combined with, catastrophism, which suggests that something really bad is going to happen. But, you know, if your response to Trump and the idea that Trump is a fascist, that's something I don't agree with. I don't think he was a fascist. Um, Not to say that there's not a huge bunch of other problems with it, but I just don't think that's the right conception of it. But if your response to fascism is to wear pussy hats, that just seems to me a bit of a contradiction. That doesn't seem very serious to me, you know. And you can see the infantilism of like the giant... Uh, Trump baby balloon that you had in, in protests in London and stuff like that. So this this infantilism 
Um, but there's also a, a kind of a deeper sense of infantilism, which is even worse than just um, these kind of superficial things which seem really frivolous. It's the idea that someone else has to come and save us, mm-hmm. right? And that is infantile in the sense of looking to a higher authority. So the elected, the, the things that people did either directly through the representatives, whether it was voting for Trump or voting uh, for Brexit, where a majority voted for that to leave the EU, to instead look to effectively anti-democratic forces to come and save you. So whether that's suddenly allying with the FBI, like, yeah, those are great guys, uh, to come and investigate Trump, or um, looking to the judges in the UK to overrule Brexit, appealing to the EU, and so on. Um, Basically, the the dependence on anti-democratic or counter-democratic, counter-majoritarian institutions uh, to to resolve your politics for you because you've been outflanked or, or outright defeated. So if the elites are on the fainting couch, does this present an opportunity for the left? That's a good question. Um, I, mean, I think I we're think also on that. the fainting couches, <laughs> right, yeah. un- unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the left has its own hysterical reactions, right? And I think a, a whole section of the left is drawn into the basically liberal orbit. Um, and so especially without actual left-wing organizations that you can point to, if it's just people online, individuals, and so on, um, it's difficult to even speak of necessarily of, of a left in the way that it used to be spoken about because you could point to trade unions or associations and parties and so on, right? Um, does it open a, an opportunity? Yes, but I think the one of the ironies, I think, and this is a real unfortunate irony, is that the way that the return of politics has been parlayed into kind of the public sphere has been through the rejuvenation of culture wars. And that's really unfortunate because it's something that is kind of transversal, cuts across where class polarization should be. So instead of being, you know, broad working class against uh, the middle class and the elite, uh, what you have, it, and of course that's a that's a bit of a kind of uh, kind of schematic view of politics. It's not always so clear cut, but you know more or less that right class politics. What you have is something that cuts across, in which um, where you have sections of the working class, maybe uh, more, um, let's say, instead of when white majority countries, non-white working class allying with sections of professional middle class people uh, against, on the other side, a whole other section of the working class and different sections of the middle class, right? So it, it ends up kind of impeding class politics. And what you've so you, what you've had. Uh, is is a is a reheated culture wars, and so and we write a bit about this in the book that the new culture wars that you have now are different from the culture wars that were typically spoken about that emerged since the 1960s, especially in the U.S. But you can think about the campus wars in the 80s and 90s as kind of the perfect example. Those were often about moral issues, about you know abortion, um, about the death penalty, and so on. And so they didn't seem obviously political. I mean, they're clearly kind of cultural issues, right? Um, Whereas today you have things which seem political, seem quite obvious about policing, maybe um, about immigration, um, even about public spending and things like that, but which um, should be dealt with in, you know, ideally in class politics, in class terms and class polarization. What you end up having is something which completely cuts against that, which polarizes people around um, issues of, yeah, I mean, as I say, kind of, uh, so anyway, I mean, what I'm trying to get at is that it seems more political. Than before, right? It seems more political than just culture wars, but it still follows the logic of culture wars, and that's what's unfortunate, and that's what we have to get past. Um, that there's no way of, um, of I think, trying to pursue that because it's not even clear what side one should take in that. I mean, I, I myself find myself completely torn on some of these culture war issues. You know, um, 
I'm in favor of a liberal immigration policy, but I'm in, but I'm against the kind of performative claims to having uh, you know kind of no borders whatsoever, which seems to me a, a complete kind of neoliberal policy in my view. So yeah, you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders that? has famously called that a Koch yeah. brothers proposal, and he's yeah. not wrong. <laughs> yeah, and look, I'm I'm in favor of a very liberal immigration policy, but I also Likewise. recognize it's probably not democratically feasible right now. It's something that needs to be argued for, but it's not something you can just depend on on uh, on people to vote for. So, um, yeah. So that reminds me, I also wanted to ask you about um, something we were talking about before you came on, which is this idea of progressive neoliberalism, or, you know, some might call it wokeness, uh, which again, is this kind of a uh, uh, very radical uh, sort of language when it comes to, you know, racial and gender issues. Um, and, and, Again, borrowing a lot of the language from the new left and uh, borrowing a lot of that radicalism. Uh, but sometimes it seems like that is being used to legitimize, uh, you know, our current economic order. Um, so I'm wondering what you think of this idea. I mean, you've gotten at it a little bit already, but what do you think of this idea of, you know, wokeness on the left and and, and how we should be thinking about it? Um, and also, do, do you feel like progressive neoliberalism is kind of a last gasp to save our economic order? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, I think wokeness um which maybe needs to be unpacked but i'm not going to do that right now i think we all right, know what yeah. we're, i think we all know what we're talking about right um it's a certain you know hysteria hysterical way of doing politics of and identity politics and so on um that is clearly being used as a means of legitimation for the neoliberal elite um what i think has happened and especially after the defeat of left populism and we dedicate a fair bit of space in the book to talking about the defeat of left populism again as um as, as i've already discussed kind of not just Corbyn and Sanders, but Syriza Podemos and so on, um, that that defeat has left the left being, in large parts, the last people holding the candle of neoliberalism. Because what has happened is that the the right, the maybe the more traditional right, has been a little bit more flexible, though, you know, actually, you could put Biden in this camp as well, in moving towards a more form of state capitalism, for lack of a better way to put it more state spending. I mean, the UK guaranteed 80% of wages, which is something completely unthinkable. And that's a conservative government doing it. Um, so things are shifting away from neoliberalism and it's, it's not the left doing it. You know, it's, um, it's the, it's the mainstream right or even the populist right doing it. Um, and the reason that they've been led to do it is not just the pandemic, which obviously po- poses a, an objective problem, which they've had to respond to, but also you've had a, a decade of populist incursions um, just explosions across across the West, basically. And that's scared them into doing something. It might It's not going to be enough. It's not going to be sufficient. But, you know, there's more talk now of um, kind of easing regional inequalities through spending and so on. Um, and so what you've ended up with is the left holding on to neoliberalism. And what I mean by that is, like, I'm not saying the left is in favor of talking about central bank independence or lowering trade barriers or anything like that in, in that kind of classical mold of, of neoliberalism. But it's the last one's holding on to wokeness, which is, in my view, a form a form of hyper individualism, um, and also allied to a form of managerialism. Right, that the the, the left's response to, and I mean, I see this in the UK, and I follow British politics more closely than than US. So forgive me for talking more about that. But in the UK, you have the Tory government setting the terms of the debate. And the Labour Party and even the left of Labour kind of going, well, we would do that, but we would do that better. 
we would implement that better. You've implemented them the wrong way or you're corrupt. Again, the return of anti-corruption politics, which leaves you nowhere. It doesn't say that you have a different vision of society. Um, it doesn't really popul- polarize politics and it doesn't give the left any independence and independence in the sense of being having its own independent politics, which are not parasitic on what elites or conservatives are doing. But what's happened is actually the left being ending up really parasitic on that, just saying, yeah, but yes, but, you know, like, okay, yeah, cool that you're doing more spending, but we would do more spending or we would do it better. Or we would implement it in a fairer way or we would make it more racially uh, racially equal because there's in a, racial inequalities in the way you're doing it. But that doesn't present a, not even a, let alone a systemic term, doesn't really present a, any serious opposition to uh, to the way things are now being run. And you also kind of talk about how the left is trying to kind of circumvent national politics and jump to kind of an international, supranational politics. Can you say a little bit yeah. more about how that's playing out? Yeah, so I mean, this is a, a kind of form of escapism, I guess. And in a way is uh, the left's own version of knobs, right? That it's affected with a breakdown of neoliberalism, but rather than trying to seize that opportunity, and especially in Europe, I think that can only mean a return to national politics. Not that I think that nationalism is you know, the, the, the kind of horizon of politics, but ultimately, even as an internationalist, you are an internationalist, and that politics has to begin at home. And the attempt to seize the state and to... Um, kind of make national politics meaningful again um, is the only way to move beyond, uh, especially in, in the European case, the the EU's kind of complete crushing of, of, of national sovereignty. And I don't mean that the EU is some kind of em- like empire force crushing national sovereignty. The EU is a means by which elites are able to evade national democratic accountability. And for however withered and uh, however much of a void there is in national politics, uh, supranational politics presents even more of a void because it's even more distant from citizens. Um, and national politics, at the end, you still have democratic elections, however you know limited, problematic, and so on. They are better, and it's still been the only form through which uh, the left has been able to eke out or, or gain serious concessions uh, from, from, from the elite, whether it be su- su- from suffrage all the way up to kind of various social rights, social spending, and so on. Um, and so supranationalism is, is an evasive thing. It kind of, you know, you see it after defeats very often where the left kind of goes, shit, all our, uh, all our, all our citizens are, are against us, right? Or, or, you know, we can't convince people. We, well, because they, they haven't thought of convincing people. They just think, well, they're all reactionaries, right? They're all uh, either deluded, brainwashed, et cetera, right? All, various ways of uh, kind of, well, effectively hating the masses or, or washing one's hands of needing to win people over to win the masses over, right? And so as a consequence, there's a rush to either to localism, which is a, its own form of escapism, or upwards up to um, supranational politics of trying to carry out uh, politics by creating links internationally, which feels really nice. And it's great to make links internationally with, with uh, other left-wing people uh, across borders, like nothing against that. But when that takes the place of national politics, which is the, the kind of the fundamental thing, then that's really a problem and it ends up being invasive. You've stumped me. I don't have any other <laughs> questions. Right? Um, I mean, um, well, oh, yeah. sorry, go, go ahead. Well, and I think you kind of answered it. And I, like when you talk about the left, you say it when you were saying like they're they're left kind of defending neoliberalism. Is that where you're kind of getting at when you I think you have a line in the book where the left as it's currently constituted kind of builds in sympathy 
for existing institutions? Is that kind of what you're you're getting at there? Yeah, and I think there's there's a thing. I mean, not to reprise what has become a bit of a tired like PMC debate. Maybe you've discussed this on this channel before, whatever. Oh, yeah. But I mean, in fact, I don't want to get into it, but <laughs> but I'm gonna have to get into it a little bit. But uh, but effectively, you know, if, if the left is in large parts middle class today, um, the problem is that there's a, a kind of inbuilt sympathy to institutions. So you might hate banks and you might hate finance and you might hate industrialists, um, but you're still sympathetic to other elements of the establishment, which are, uh, I guess, ideology producers, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, I think then this I think when you can see a clear example of this where people, the, the left, especially the middle class left, overstates the role of the media which leads them to think that, you know, if you're watching Fox News, you're, you're brainwashed or Fox News is brainwashing you um, for just to take the most kind of obvious example. Um, and that overstates it because most people don't trust the media. In fact, there's a huge trust deficit. Most people don't trust institutions anymore. Uh, most people don't trust politicians. Politicians are hated. Journalists are hated. Um, lawyers, even as well, the judicial system. So there's a huge lack of trust uh, which is, I guess, the, the the substrate or the basis for the anti-politics uh, that we already discussed. Um, but this is in a more maybe sociological sense than than just political. That people just don't trust uh, institutions, and it, it ends up that that trust ends up being put in maybe other institutions, but it's never really that strong. So you suddenly see maybe, depending on what country you're in, police being the only institution that's trusted. Does that mean that people love the police? Probably not. It's just that it ends up being a repository for very limited trust that people have. And that lack of trust is also a product and, uh, and a contributing factor of the void, right, of people's, people no longer belonging to mass organizations. And so people are increasingly individualized, increasingly atomized, and therefore mistrust uh, institutions. So where, where am I going with this? What does this have to do with uh, the left building in... Um, building in kind of uh, dependence on, on, on kind of mainstream institutions. What's at the left probably looks at the media and it might not like many mainstream media outlets, but it thinks people believe in the media it, it, because middle-class people in general tend to believe more in the media, have, trust the media a lot more. They tend to trust politicians. So they pay attention to all the discourse that happens. Um, but for a lot of people, they're not necessarily paying attention or at any rate, probably a lot more skeptical um, of things that are, that come from uh, the, the dominant institutions in society. Um, and so th- I think the left has to be careful. Uh, you know, we all have to be careful with that in terms of um, not kind of substituting in how we feel or how we view the world uh, and assume that that is how all society views the world. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of gets at what we were talking about earlier, where it's like the left or liberals left defending universities as this great cultural institution when increasingly they are alienating people because people can't afford to really get in them. Right. Yeah. And most no, and, people and, and in the U.S. don't yeah. have a college education. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It's something that you're not, you don't even pass through. It's not like, oh, you tried and you were excluded. For you, it might not have been a, a, even an option, right? I mean, I don't know what the rates are of, of university participation now in the U.S., but in, in the U.K., they've made a huge push to get like up to 50% of the population, which is still large, but it's still going to be the upper section of the population. And, you know, you have to be, you have to be honest about that. But unfortunately, the university has become probably the last site of socialization for leftists in, uh, in, in society. And as a consequence, uh, and especially because the, it's not necessarily anything inherently radical about academia. I mean, it's just that you're able to deal with ideas unencumbered with the need for power. 
but that can lead you to all sorts of crazy places, <laughs> as, as, as we can see. <laughs> Um, so I think we're going to wrap up, but I do have one last question and it's kind of a big one. Uh, but I, I, I want to go back to, uh, this idea of whether neoliberalism is on its deathbed. Right. And again, I think, you know, post 2008 or like post occupy, there was sort of a resurgence of optimism, uh, from some quarters of the left where the, uh, assumption was neoliberalism is dying and something around the corner is better and is going to replace it. Um, so do you think neoliberalism is dying and what are some possibilities, both good and bad for what comes next? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it is dying, but because there isn't an obvious force, an obvious kind of oppositional force within society uh, overtaking it, or throwing it out somehow, um, it's been a slow death. It's been a slow death and it's been kind of withering away. And of course, the pandemic, which is, uh, of course, something, an objective force. It's not a subjective force. It's not something that people are consciously doing, banding together to, to change uh, to move beyond neoliberalism to something else. It's something that ends up being kind of an imposition on elites that they have to respond to it somehow. But nevertheless, they are responding. And I think, you know, Biden's spending plans, big numbers, but actually when you factor it out and look at it across a number of years, probably not that much money. But it nevertheless signals a shift um, materially in terms of the state being willing to spend and that its proposal to citizens is that we're going to protect you. And I think the whole management of the pandemic, however disastrous it's been across the West, nevertheless, you know, it, it signals a state like we're going to protect you at all costs. Maybe maybe you've gone too far in that regard in, in, in terms of the, the lockdowns. But without getting into that debate, what's actually happened is that um, states are, you know, guaranteeing wages. They're cutting checks to, to citizens, uh, you know, in the U.S. Uh, and so there seems to be a shift towards a more protective state, I guess. And that elites will now try to legitimize themselves, closing borders to protect you from, you know, the dangerous immigrants out there. Um, but it might take also the form of uh, protecting industries, which maybe were previously threatened. I think it's telling that even someone like Paul Krugman, right, the New York Times column, columnist and economist, um, has said that, you know, he really needs Biden's plan to work. Not, and, and he, you know, asked, you know, aren't you worried about inflation? And he goes, no, actually, I, I don't care about inflation. I'm not interested in the economics of it. I'm interested in the politics of it. And we can't let the Republicans back in. So Biden just needs to spend to basically win votes. And that prioritization of a political objective, however limited it is, and, you know, um, in defense of the Democrats and so the Republicans, however limited that is, it's really telling that he's favored a political objective over a, an, an economic one, right? And, and inflation, inflation targeting is one of the key um, indices of, of neoliberal management, right? Um, of making sure uh, prices don't don't increase and making sure that wages uh, are kept uh, suppressed. And I think just to add one more thing, I think the the ideological authority of neoliberals has also ended. So the idea that competition will be the re the, the solution to everything, that lowering trade barriers, um, that reducing capital controls, all these things. No one's making those arguments anymore. If they are, they're the last neoliberals. In fact, they sound a little bit like leftists. They sound a little bit like us, you know, going, oh, no, but that wasn't real socialism. That didn't really work. You know, like, no, the Soviet Union, no, that was bad. Yeah. We're doing real this socialism. This trade right? wasn't free enough. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And th exactly, and that's what they're doing. Like, yeah, yeah, but you still had way too much state involvement in the economy or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. but that was really existing neoliberalism. You can't. They can't wash their hands of that. They're not allowed to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, 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 okay, just one last follow-up question. Could something worse come next? Because that's always the fear, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the pandemic hints at something there where there's a huge increase in, in state power, uh, in the increase in the surveillance state, that people become accustomed maybe to the idea that the state can tell you, no, you're not allowed out, you know, <laughs> you're not allowed to protest. Uh, we can set the conditions on this. And j- just a, a, a sense that... Um, yeah, it's a sense that the state now is is taking care of you. And while that sounds good, I think, relative to the years of neoliberal austerity, when especially in a place where like the US, where you have um, much less funded public services, social services, public spending and so on, um, where being taken care of sounds kind of better than like being left on your own. Um, but I'm, I don't think we should be too happy about that, because ultimately the aim of socialist politics is for us to rule, for us to be in charge, for us to take charge of the future. It is political autonomy, not being taken care of. Um, and so we should be we should be wary of that. Yeah. You can have Uncle Joe Stalin or Uncle Joe Biden. That's, uh, <laughs> right, that's right. Those are your two choices. <laughs> yeah, that's a Joe Brezhnev, I think, as people right. have been saying. <laughs> Soviet America. <laughs> Um, all right. So just to remind viewers out there, Alex Hokules' new book, uh, it's coming out on June 25th, and that is the end of the end of history, politics in the 21st century. Um, Alex, do you have any extra plugs you want to make for the podcast or anything we didn't cover in the book? Um, well, one, one plug, uh, bungocast.com, if you want to know more information, bungocast.com slash book, uh, you know, to get more information, uh, on, on the book. Um, I hope people, uh, read it and enjoy it. Um, and, uh, you'll also learn a little bit about Italy because, uh, as, as you see, Berlusconi is on the cover, uh, the podcast is called Alfa Bunga Bunga, right? A reference to, uh, to the infamous Bunga Bunga parties. And there's something important because I think if you understand Berlusconi's biography, and the history of Italy in, in over the course of the end of history, you kind of understand the world because right there in there is encapsulates all the different tendencies. And so if you think Trump was a novelty uh, with his buffoonery, but also neoliberalism, but also populism and authoritarianism, dude, he was he was late. He came like 25 years too late. Berlusconi did all that in the early 90s. So uh, that's a, a, a kind of figure that you have to kind of uh, in some ways have a, have a grudging admiration for for just – being the guy who encapsulates the end of history. Yes, Italy was ahead of the curve. Uh, yeah. Again, it's it's a really great book, so um, I encourage everybody to check that out when it comes out. Uh, we were lucky enough to get a little advanced copy, of course, which is why we have Alex on today. Um, but Alex, thank you so much. And uh, uh, like I said, everybody check out the book. Thank you both. That was a lot of fun. Cheers. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. So... It's been decided neoliberalism is on its deathbed, yeah. <laughs> but we don't know what's coming next. Right. What I took from that is that everything's going to be fine. I don't know if you <laughs> right, came away yeah. like that, but that was my <laughs> conclusion. So. Yeah, yeah. So cool. uh, ending on a positive note, as always. Uh, but before we end for real, uh, we have Labor Paul, don't we? We do. We do. Uh-huh. Um, so just again, really quickly, uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, Labor Paul is our Q&A section where Paul, <laughs> the Labor Paul, uh, takes any labor-related questions, whether that's uh, related to forming a union, whether that has to do with labor history, uh, and he will answer them. Uh, so we get a batch of new questions uh, pretty much every week, uh, and Paul answers them. Paul, you're answering a question that came in last week. So what do we have today? 
So we have one. Um, this is from M. Lalis or Lalis. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, but what do you make of recent organizing in tech that's aimed at determination of company policy rather than narrowly workplace concerns? For instance, Google organizing around the military. Um, so I think the jury is kind of still out on that model, and we should be cautious about fully embracing it. And you know, in labor organizing, I don't think it's an either or between workplace concerns like wages, benefits, and safety and determining company policy. But I do think there's kind of an order of operations. And what they have at Google is called a minority union, which means only a minority of workers have chosen to be part of the union. And so from this position, they may be able to win certain concessions or raise issues, but they aren't able to really collectively bargain and win contracts that affect the whole workforce. So if we're talking about organizing a fully-fledged union and maintaining it, and raising the living standards of workers, I think it all starts at home. And I think what I mean by that, the anchor of that often needs to be the shared grievances workers face on the job. That seems to me the best route towards getting to a majority and building the power that's needed to change conditions. And one thing about labor organizing, which I think makes it unique and very important for us to engage in, is that you can't organize by self-selection. Capitalism just throws people together in workplaces. You don't know what kind of political views your coworkers will have, uh, what their views on social issues are, so you don't get to choose who you organize. And that imposes, I think, a kind of discipline on your organizing, and it forces you to try and find common ground and shared interests, even if they're not right in front of your face. And that's something I think we need to do in all of our political work, whether that's in the labor movement or not. So my fear uh, with the kind of organizing you reference at Google is that it could turn into a self-selection organizing. The people that already care about the military-industrial complex uh, would join, or the people that already care about mass incarceration will join the union and they'll be able to build out um, you know, among their people, but they won't be able to build out from there if they don't focus first on the issues that don't, um, you know, well, they won't be able to build off from there if they're focusing on the issues that don't lend themselves to finding common ground with other coworkers. Um, so that's kind of my fear with, with that mode. And it seems like every episode I find an excuse to bring up Tony Mizaki, and I'm going to do it again. I'm sorry. But I think his organizing relates to this question. And so he was a leader in the oil, chemical, and atomic workers union. He was always raising controversial social and political issues in his union. And after all, he coined the phrase just transition in a union full of oil workers. So he was never afraid to raise them, but he didn't start out by doing that. If you look at his um, his life and his career, you know he started by making his local union as strong as possible on contract issues. And in doing that, he built up trust um, and capacity and a leadership ability within his, within his union. Um, and then he went from there. So we want to get to the point of determining company policy. That's ultimately what we want. And I think, I mean, unions, I think from a socialist perspective, you know, we don't like unions just because we like the idea of contracts. I mean, this is about building working class power. But if we actually want to get the power to affect company policy, I think we may need to start with the issues that are closest to home and to what workers are experiencing. And I, you know, I don't want to be entirely dismissive. I think this could be effective in certain situations. I'm interested, I'm interested to see how it plays out at Google, but I'm skeptical about how much that can be applied as a model across the board. Um, and Jen, I don't know if you have any thoughts, thoughts around that. I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And um, I, think, I, I think we've touched on this um, in you know, prior shows. 
I, I do have some mixed feelings about white collar unions, I suppose you could call them. Um, I just want to put it out there that any union is better than no union. I think we've said that multiple times, or I, I hope that we're clear about that. Um, so, you know, I definitely do not want to like disparage a union just because it happens to be, you know, what we might call professional managerial class or a white collar union. Um, but just because there has been a lot of white collar unionization as of late, um, obviously in the tech sector, but also like a lot of media outlets have unionized over the last several years and are very open and vocal about the efforts to do so. Again, these are all great. Um, and, and like you said, the Google union being a minority union is a little bit different. Um, but I think the sort of overarching concern with some of these white collar unions is, um, I think oftentimes the, uh, a lack of understanding of labor history or of what a union actually is uh, sometimes comes into play, right? So I know, um, I don't want to name names, but I know that uh, there are some media unions that sort of treat the union as kind of HR plus, which I think is a phrase I've used on the show before, or like, you know, like a benevolent oversight board that is like there to protect the workers or to, you know, um, to kind of enforce uh, labor law. And that's maybe like a fraction of that is true, but like a union is the rank and file, like the union is the members, right? Uh, and a union is not a social club. Um, I, I know that sounds like really crazy to say, but I think that sometimes uh, when the focus is kind of on enforcing company policy or, you know, like divesting from this and that, um, as you were saying, the tendency, I think, is there to, uh, uh, and, and I'm not saying this always happens, but the tendency is there to treat a union as like a collection of like-minded people rather than as this sort of like messy organization of rank and file workers who are, uh, you know, fighting for more, uh, uh, you know, better pay, better benefits, uh, workplace issues on the job. Um, so I don't know if you have thoughts on, you know, white collar unions in general. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, white collar versus blue collar that, you know, is can be slightly arbitrary, you know, it's like true. in terms of, yeah. and obviously, you know, uh, there are so many different forms of white collar workers that could have diff very different pay scales and conditions. And, and you know, to be fair, and plenty of, um, you know, more blue collar unions also kind of act in a way where it's like, the union is uh, servicing the contract mm. where, you know, and it's not necessarily like rank and file empowerment. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I kind of look at it more just from a practical basis and, you know, based on my very limited experience, but just from what I know of the labor world, you know, just chances are just like anywhere else in the world, like most people are at least at first kind of just focused on some of the more immediate day to day. And that's kind of what they're interested in solving or taking care of first. Um, and obviously, you know, the last episode we had Les Leopold who talked yeah. about political education. So, you know, to be clear, I think unions should be taking on bigger social issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they have a responsibility to, to be doing that with their members. Um, but, you know, I think and I think when it's like a minority type union, like like what's been, I think, happening at Google, it's like, yeah, there's going to be a segment that are interested in those type of issues. But the danger is then what about the average worker that isn't in the union and to right. them? Oh, that's the place where you go if you're like really concerned about foreign policy. <laughs> right, Not right. like, oh, if if I have a issue, that's the place that's going to mm -hmm. take care of it. So I think that mm -hmm. is the danger where, um, you know, it you develop a reputation or uh, 
you're, you're just seen in that light instead of this is something that affects every single worker here, no matter your, you know, fully mm-hmm. fleshed out uh, political ideas. Since you brought up Tony Mazaki, did he also coin the term social unionism? Or is that... Was, he did was not. that around? Okay, he did not. I, that was like I'll be honest, before. maybe I can research that for next. Yeah, next, right, uh, yeah. yeah. Add I, um, that to Labor Paul. <laughs> right. Yeah, he, he did not, but um, he definitely Yeah, and I just want to be clear. That. I mean, because, yeah, yeah, because Tony Mazaki is a perfect example. Like, in no way am I saying that, like, unions should not concern themselves with things like gender and racial pay gaps. Actually, we know that unions are pretty good at eliminating those things. Um, and that was a priority of Tony Mizaki's. Um, so I, I want to put that out there as well, that, like, you know, I don't mean to suggest that, oh, like, white collar, white collar unions, like, care about, like, political issues and blue collar unions uh, are, like, just interested in wages or something. That's not at all what I'm saying. Um, but just based on my, you know limited, to be quite frank, experience in a white collar union in the past uh, and working with and around other people who organize with white collar unions and who are in white collar unions, you know, um, there there's some it's a mixed bag, I think. Right. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And I and I know I've said this before, I think on a previous labor poll segment, but a mistake I think sometimes leftists make in the labor movement is like they see their role as like let me be the person that can bring up the most exotic political mm. issues, not necessarily being let me be the best organizer, you know, or the person who can help most effectively deal with issues in the workplace. Um, and again, I think it's more about the order of operations. And the great book that Leslie Leopold wrote on Mazaki, you know, when you read it, what um, made Tony able to do this other kind of organizing was the fact that he first spent a few years in leadership, and he totally just transformed the union, and by consequence, transforming people's living standards, you know, and everything. And after that, people kind of just had this overwhelming trust in him, where if he didn't do that work beforehand, he coming with these ideas, they might have rejected it. But I think Mm -hmm. once you've earned that kind of trust, you know, that takes time. And I think just there might be a tendency to kind of skip those steps, Mm -hmm. and go right to the thing that we as leftists want to go to, which is like, the bigger ideas and the bigger issues, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well said. Uh, well, I think on that note, uh, let's call it a night. It was great talking to Alex. Uh, great, uh, to be back after a few weeks off for me. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next week. All right. Good night guys. (laughs) 